honest, as I was sitting here, <clears throat> I wasn't expecting uh, the wave of emotions to be uh, hitting me. <clears throat> so if I do get emotional, I trust that you'll forgive me for that. Because in 1960, my parents moved into 280 George Dye Road, about three and a half miles from here. And a few weeks after we moved in, we came to this new church startup called Faith Baptist Church. And I was only about, I don't know, five years old at the time. But, but I still remember vividly walking into the church that very first Sunday. The, the service had already begun and we were obviously a little bit late and we walked down the middle aisle of those metal chairs and sat in the second row. And um, this morning, when I parked over here and I came in there, I said to my wife, I said, i got to go in there. It's, <coughs> sorry. So I went into the youth center, and uh, the platform is still right where it was, and I just walked up there and, and uh, just recollected. And I'll, I'll never forget Pastor Nelson you know, welcoming our family and my, having my dad stand up. And, you know, we were fresh meat. I mean, uh, this young family with four kids there. And, and he was just smiling from ear to ear. And my you know, dad introduced us and so forth. And, uh, and, and that Sunday uh, began, frankly, the, the trajectory of my life. Uh, my parents immediately jumped into ministry here. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget my dad when they were talking about building this new church uh, over here. And my dad made a scale model of, of this new church. And it was like the coolest thing because you could take the roof off and see inside it. And, uh, and then they started construction. And uh, I remember there were huge piles of dirt around here. And uh, Pastor Nelson had uh, several boys. I became friends with uh, Philip and Mark. And I remember there was this one huge pile of dirt about 10 feet right around the center aisle here, about 10 feet high. And, and they dug tunnels through this huge pile of dirt. And I remember one Sunday, I thought it would be a great idea if I'd crawl through that tunnel in my Sunday go to meet and close. My mother was not happy. But uh, just great memories. And, and uh, then, you know, Pastor Nelson had physical issues. He lost his voice, had to leave the ministry, called Pastor Elliot. And uh, he had sons, too. See, I had three sisters and just me. So to have boys to play with like, was like the greatest thing on planet Earth. And so he had uh, Steve and, and Bruce, and we became great friends. And then they transitioned on. And then in fifth grade... Uh, Pastor Lee came here, and he had several children. Kevin and I were both the same age. We hit it off and were friends all through those growing up years. But as I've reflected on coming here today, I've also reflected on, on uh, people just <clears throat> like you who, who um, planted the seeds of truth into my life that ultimately God used to make me wise into salvation. I think of Jane Titus. 
um, teaching me the Bible. I think of Walt Ivaniski. I, I think of Gene Davies. I think of George uh, Long as our youth sponsor. And, and, and all of those instances of, of growing up being taught the word of God here. I, I wasn't genuinely converted until I was 14. And I know I was, I was saved then because by the grace of God, I became a new uh, creation. Uh, up to that point, you know, I, I wasn't really a bad kid. I mean, the worst things I did, I liked to play with gasoline and fire. Uh, and, and I enjoyed shooting frogs in the creek with my bow and arrow. That was like the extent of my wickedness. But, but at 14 years of age, through a series of events, God showed me my true heart, and, and, and I became a new creation in Christ. I, I was changed. And again, I'm thankful for faithful people like you, you sponsors, Bud Method, who, a new believer himself, um, took me out to this new hamburger joint called McDonald's. And I remember he was so nervous having to minister to this twerky high school kid, you know. His, his hands were shaking as he was trying to eat his hamburger. But, but what came through was that he cared for me. Uh, Carl Miller, who at the time we had Sunday school superintendent, and, and we would used to have a, a rally every Sunday before church started, and they'd have a little devotional, and then they'd dismiss us to the classes. And, and, and he saw something in me and would have me do these little devotionals. And it was, it was through that that, lo and behold, I began to get this oddball interest in being a pastor. I mean, before that, I wanted to be a police officer, law enforcement or something, but I began to get this weird, unique interest in, in being a, a pastor. But, but faith's legacy in my life is, is by people like you who, who demonstrated for me and showed me what it looked like to love God, what it's like to love people, and, and what it was like to, to love this book and to experience the fact that this book works, that this book is unstoppable. And, and now, though the cover is worn and its pages are torn, and though places bear traces of tears, yet more precious than gold is this book worn and old that can shatter and scatter my fears. This old book is my guide, tis a friend by my side. It will lighten and brighten my way. And he's promise I find soothes and gladdens my mind as I read it and heed it each day. To this book I will cling. Of its worth I will sing. Though great losses and crosses be mine. For I cannot despair, though surrounded by care, while possessing this blessing divine. And I'm so grateful for the legacy of Faith Baptist Church that was comprised of people who still love this book and its Lord today. Well, after I graduated from high school, I, I went to college at uh, Baptist Bible College and then seminary there as well and uh, got married. And our first ministry, I spent four and a half years down in uh, Dale City, Virginia as a high school Bible and speech teacher and an assistant pastor there. And then in 1987, the Lord called us to Grace Baptist Church in Batavia, New York, where I've been privileged to pastor there for now a little over 32 years. 
Like you, through the years, I've seen a lot of people come, and I've seen a lot of people go. What is it that makes some people stick, and, and other people just fall away? Someone once said, the test of your character is what it takes to stop you. I often tell our people that, that you know, the issue is not how well you begin, rather it's how well you end. And over the years, I've seen a whole lot of people make beautiful swan dives into the pool of Christian experience. And while we're impressed and awed and thankful for those testimonies, you know, over time, I'm more interested in seeing that they swim well. And so the question this morning is this, what is it that drives people who work hard at doing the next right thing so that they might be able to end well? You see, everyone wants that commendation, well done, thy good and faithful servant. But how do you get there? How do you get that? What does that look like? And so what I wanted to do this morning and then tonight as well is is just look at uh, this question of of how do you have a long-haul life? Uh, How do you live for for the line and and not the dot? And so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning as uh, Pastor mentioned in 2 Timothy 2. And then tonight I invite you to come back if you'd like for uh, we're going to be looking at unpacking Hebrews chapter 12. And yet this morning, just in the few moments that we have together, uh, let's look at that question, how do you have a long-haul life? How do you, here at Faith Baptist Church, in the here and now, uh, make your life count and, and end well? Because, you know, most of you people don't know me. You don't know me. People come, people go, but you know what? This ministry had an eternal impact in my life. And right now, what you are doing matters eternally. And so with reference to this before us here this morning, uh, in spending our time in uh, um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, what's a long-haul life look like? Here's what it looks like. First of all, here's what you need to do. You need to own who you are. Own who you are. Passage starts out here in verse 24 where it says this. Uh, it says, and the servant of the Lord. You see, the question is this, who are you? You know, today there's a whole lot of identity confusion in our culture. Uh, believers have clarity on who they are. Who are you? Here's who you are. You are a servant of the Lord. And so with reference to that, what does that look like? What does that mean when the scripture says, here's who you are. You are a servant of the Lord. Here's who you are. First of all, you are a person of incredible gratitude. You see, the fact of the matter is is this. You have a past. You are a servant of the Lord. Paul put it this way earlier in Romans chapter 6, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered unto you. And now having been set free from sin, you now are slaves of righteousness. You have a past. I remember when I was a little boy, not too much longer after we first started coming here, there was an invitation 
and I walk the aisle. And I remember sitting in this, there's a back room there, and this guy talking to me, and that was supposedly when I got saved. Well, listen, I wasn't any more saved than the man in the moon. Uh, I was just doing what I thought was the right thing to do, didn't really understand it. I was just responding. You know, kids are head nodders, you know. And so I just did what I thought I should do, but didn't have a clue as to what I was doing. God didn't really start to wake me up until seventh grade. I went to Camp Linwood, where I think you have still New Life Island now, but before those days, we had Camp Linwood. And so I went to Camp Linwood. And this guy, Warren Simmons, was the Bible teacher that week, and he talked about end-time events, had the big end-time chart there up there, and talk about things like the rapture and the tribulation. Scared the pants off me. I'd never heard of that stuff before. But that started a three-year journey of great spiritual turmoil in my heart struggling as to what it meant to be a believer and whether or not I truly was one. Fast forward, it wasn't until right before my sophomore year in high school, and by the grace of God, he opened up my eyes and, and, and wonderfully transformed me. And, and there's where, as I mentioned, um, I know I was saved then because I became a new creation in Jesus Christ. And, 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 and I was saved. I was rescued, and, and, and I knew I was saved. And, 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 and back then, what we began to see in, in our youth group well, was other people uh, getting saved as well. Uh, yesterday, um, we've had a little bit of a reunion here of, of old youth group friends, and, and Terry Van Scoy, one of those individuals, had us over to her house for a brunch, and several of us assembled. And it's so special for me to, to, to sit around that table with about 10 or so of, of uh, our former youth group and, and remember back when, you know, after I got saved, then, you know, Ken Fork got saved and then Tom Barkley got saved and then Debbie Palmer got saved and then Rosemary Shulkoff uh, got saved and, and we talked about other things. And, and, and the thing that bonded us together was not so much that we liked each other, but that God rescued us. God saved us. And, and, and we didn't know a whole lot back then. But what we did know was that we were transformed. And what we wanted to do was share that good news with others as, as inadequately as we tried. This morning, the question before the house is simply this. Do you have a past? Do you have a past whereby your heart now has incredible gratitude for what God has done for you? That he has made you his servant. And then not only do you have uh, this truth of being a person of incredible gratitude, but now what you understand is that you are a person of real responsibility. Because you are a servant of the Lord. One of the passages that drives me today is in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 where you have the image of the risen Son of God walking amongst the churches. And there, because of his death, burial, and victorious resurrection, he is holding churches, he is holding pastors, he is holding people accountable for what they are doing with his mission about being more and better followers of Jesus Christ. 
And I say this all the time to our people, you know what? Our goal is to minimize the number of people who someday are going to have to stand before God and confess that they spent their life in the camp of the uncommitted. You see, you are a people of not only incredible gratitude, but you are a people of real responsibility. I say it this way in my church. Nobody here has a private agenda. Here's what our agenda is. Our agenda is about being about more and better followers of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. And I want to say thank you to Faith Baptist Church for your legacy of living strong in that direction in your lives. And so what does it look like to have a long-haul life? Well, first of all, you've got to own who you are. Uh, secondly, what you need to do here, as we'll learn in our text, is you've got to stay above the fray. You've got to stay above the fray. Note what it says there. It says this, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Must not. Here is your obligation. Do not quarrel. Uh, that, that word quarrel is interesting. It means to fight with words. We live in a culture today where from the political discourse to the public uh, arena, you know, verbal cage fighting is normative. And we live in a very verbally harsh culture. But here it says this, people who are in it for the long haul, for the cause of Christ, need to be these kind of people. People who aren't about their agenda. You see, when I'm fighting with words, it's about my agenda. But when I am in it for the long haul, for the one who rescued me, it's about his agenda. And so what does this look like? Well, how do you counter contention? How do you be a person that, that doesn't fight with words? The text says this, but here's the opposite of what you need to be doing. What does it look like to, not counter, to, to be able to counter uh, contention? First of all, this, don't play favorites. Here's what you need to do. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Don't play favorites. Word means to have strength under control, to be peaceable with a, uh, when you're in a heated atmosphere and to, to have a soothing effect. And, and note here it says this, gentle to all. Now, there are times in our lives where we think, well, that person deserves it. I'll never forget the hard lesson I learned when we were in Virginia, and uh, the, the lead pastor had left, and I was there by myself, and there were some wrinkles going on that were challenging, and we were in a deacon meeting, and this one deacon spoke up, and in my mind, he was clearly wrong. And so I let him have it, right in front of everybody else, I just let him have it. And I was feeling pretty good about myself because he was wrong. Well, I got home that night and the phone rang and it was this deacon who was a whole lot godlier than I was. And he just walked me through what had just happened and he caused me to see the error of my way. And I ended up apologizing to him. And I remember calling up all the other deacons and admitting how I was wrong and what I had said and what I had done. And, and the last deacon I called up at the time was one of my good friends. He was a captain in the Air Force at the time. And he said this, he said, Don, he said, the cardinal sin in people work is rebuking an individual before their peers. Thank you. I never forgot that. You know, is there somebody in your world right now that you think needs to have it? 
the servant of the Lord doesn't play favorites. Gentle to all. Note also how you counter contention. Not only do you not play favorites, but you also put the, cake, uh, the cookies on the table, able to teach. I'm so thankful for Pastor Martin's legacy in my life. During my seminary years, we had to go on an internship, and so I was able to come here and spend six weeks in a, sun, uh, in a summer and just pal along with him and, and uh, learning the ropes of ministry. And near the latter part, he had me preach several times on Sunday evening. And so I would prepare all week, and then he had me, he had me preach my message to him uh, that Sunday afternoon before I had to do it. And so I had my, you know, my hermeneutically uh, um, correct outline and so forth. It was as boring as the day is long. And so I would start to preach it to him. He said, oh, no, don't do that. Say it this way. Say it this way. I'm frantically scribbling my notes, you know, changing my notes on the outline. And, and I'll never forget going back to the office where I was there before the service, just as nervous as I could be. I'm, I got 15 minutes, and I got to fix this thing, you know. And, and uh, fixing this thing and, and getting up there and winging it, it was absolutely terrible. And then he did it to me the next week as well. Same thing, just panic attacks, just, just ripping me to shreds. That was the best thing that ever happened to me. In, in helping to be able to put the cookies on the shelf. In light of ministering to where people really are. I encourage you parents who are working hard at doing that as well. And sometimes I remember a time with my daughter Carrie, and there was a situation with her life, and you know, just just trying to put the cookies on the shelf. You know, Carrie, this is what it looks like when we say we want to put the Lord first in our life and some of the hard decisions that we need to make. Put the cookies on the table as well, absorb the hits. Gentle to all, able to teach, patient. That word. Patient, it, it literally means to bear evil without resentment. To bear evil without resentment. My parents, Dick and Betty Shirk, all through those growing up years, till they left here when they retired and went back to their homestead in Bellwood, Pennsylvania. And, and you know, church life was church life. And church life is comprised of people work. Never, never did they ever speak ill in front of me about another person. You know what that did for me? That never poisoned my mind toward the work of God and toward situations that, that you just have to work through and that can be challenging in the course of doing the work of God. Absorb the hits. Maybe right now you might be going through a challenging season. Let me encourage you to, to bear that without resentment. Another thing as well here in light of what it looks like to counter contention is don't wimp out. But in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. I think one of the greatest failures to, of love today is, is the failure to correct See, the failure to correct says this, I love myself more than I love you because correcting you is going to make me uncomfortable and so therefore I'm just not going to say anything. I'll, I'll never forget, and she, never, she doesn't know this happened, but Terry, you're here today and 
when we were in high school, we used to have these Friday night hangouts. And uh, we'd be over there and, and uh, just, you know, hanging out. And back then, we had, they had buses. You know, if you were anything as a church, you had a bus ministry. And so we had buses here. And uh, we were just hanging out inside one of the buses there. And, and there might have been other people around, but, but I evidently had gotten into a habit of talking about people and uh, saying, well, you know, they're a nice person, but... And then I'd tell them what I thought was not nice about them. And, and this one night, Terry was there, and I said, you know, they're, they're a nice person, but... And, and she said this, oh, Donnie, that's everybody called me back then, oh, Donnie, you're, you're, you're always so critical of other people. Those words penetrated my heart and have served me well my entire life. Never forgot that. Never forgot the reality of, of, of what it took for someone to love me enough to rebuke me, to correct me. Don't wimp out when you, when you have to do that as a servant of the Lord. And so moving on here, what do we see here in light of the long-haul life? Here's what you need to do. You need to own who you are. You need to stay above the fray. And then third here, here's what you need to do. You need to embrace sovereignty. And when we talk about sovereignty, we're just talking about the fact that God is in control. Well, here's the question before us. What will a grasp of sovereignty do for you? If you embrace, if you understand what it means that God is in control, what does that look like? Well, here's what we see. You will hold on to outcome loosely. Because know what it says there in verse 25. If God, perhaps... If God perhaps, you see, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. And then everything's going to change, right? No. If God perhaps. I do a lot of counseling in my church, and um, being there 32 plus years, with some people it's cyclical, because things don't change. And sometimes with some people, I have to say this, you know. What happens if they don't ever change? What happens if they don't change? I think one of the great learning curves of Christian maturity is to understand that this broken world isn't heaven. And you know what? Things might not ever get fixed. Why? Because we're living for a day when everything will get fixed. And that's our hope. And so what a grasp of sovereignty does, it frees you from the enslavement of the idol of your heart that says, I must have this, I must have that, this must happen, because you're dependent upon a sovereign God. If God Perhaps. What will look a, a grasp of sovereignty do for you? You'll hold on to outcome loosely. You will put God in his place. Note there, because if God perhaps will grant them repentance. See, how, how does anybody change? It can only be a God thing. 
Our hearts are so desperately wicked and so desperately needy that unless God penetrates my heart and awakens me to the error of my way, I will not change. And so to grasp sovereignty is to have utter and absolute reliance on the gift of God that only he can produce in helping people to change. You'll put God in his place. And then as all that is going on, here's the third reality of a grasp of sovereignty and what it will do for you. You won't be confused what to do. You know, in the larger context here, it's talking about I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Who in the world are the elect? I don't have the gift to know that. Maybe Pastor Walker does. He probably knows who they are. I don't know. But, but you know, nobody knows who the elect are. But, but how, how does God bring them to himself? Here's how you're not confused about what to do. You own who you are. You stay above the fray. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. And that thing just keeps going around and around and around. You see, I consistently know what to do in people work. Own who I am. Be gentle to all. Connect the dots. All those kinds of things. You see, here's what won't work. Quarreling. You know, when somebody comes at you with nostrils flaring and finger pointing, that's really winsome, isn't it? (laughs) No, it doesn't work. But what we see happening here is this. The point is this. God is in the business of fixing the problem inside of you just as much as he is in the business of fixing the problem outside of you. And the beautiful dynamic of what's happening here is simply this is that nothing out there might change. But everything in here is changing. Because God is at work in you as much as he is at work in the situation. And so with reference to this, when you do this, here's what you rely on what only God can do. What can only God do? The only thing that God can do is change people. Grant them repentance. Now, are you a fixer? Are you the person that just has to fix everything and fix everybody? You know, in love, let me just remind you that, that free yourself from enslavement to trying to be the fourth person of the Trinity. <laughs> you, you don't need to fill that job. You know, let God change people. He's the one that does it. When you do this, you also rely on what only God can do in that, that not only does he change people, but also he's the one who brings people to the understanding of truth. You see, the long-haul life in patience lives for the line, not the dot. You know what? I've got five adult children. Um, I still parent. And... In light of all of those challenges, it's fascinating to see, even in their young adult lives, them finally getting it. Let me encourage you parents who are in the trenches right now, live for the long haul. Let God be the one who ultimately brings them to an understanding of truth. And then here's what also, when you do this, you rely on what only God can do. And what's that? Deliver people from senselessness. 
where it says, and that they may come to their senses. That word sense uh, is a very interesting uh, word there. It means to be sober again. You see, sin produces spiritual inebriation. It, it makes people fools. I remember growing up on George Dye Road, when you, in coming to church here, there was a, there was a hill there, and then you turned the corner, and it was all soybean fields. And uh, there's a few farmhouses out there. And there was this one family that lived in this one farmhouse. And every once in a while, um, the lady that lived in that farmhouse would get drunk. And she was a large woman, I remember, and she would come stumbling down the road and would just be walking like all over the street and saying something. We were petrified of her. Like, oh, no, the drunk lady's coming, the drunk. And I remember hiding behind bushes, you know, so she wouldn't. We were scared. I remember going in my house and hiding behind the curtain because the drunk lady was there. I've thought about that many times, you know. What a sad, sad situation. For a person to be so enslaved with, with the, the issues of life and the burdens of life that in the middle of the day they're inebriated and making a fool of themselves. That's what sin does to an individual. And when you grasp what only God can do, he is the only one who can deliver people from, from this senselessness and then he is the only one who can set captives free and escape the snare of uh, the devil. That word snare means to catch alive. David, New York High School, our public high school, which all my kids went to, mascot, the Blue Devils. <laughs> Here I am a pastor, and my kids are wearing devil T-shirts and so forth and whatnot, you know. <laughs> you know, you know and, and it's like, you know what? We don't grasp the reality of the enemy that we have. He is not some warm, fuzzy mask god that, that's cheering you on. No, he is looking after your soul, biding his time, waiting to ensnare you. And in light of that reality, what we see is that only grasping the fact that he's the one, God's the one who sets people free is freeing to you. You know, who is that per problem person in, in your life right now? You see, this is the problem. They're ensnared. They're helplessly held captive by the evil one to do his will. You see, and your need is to see it as it really is. Because only as you see it as it really is that they are held captive under satanic delusion and they do what they do, they say what they say, they act the way they act because they know no other way. And unless you see that, you will be marked by disdain rather than compassion for them. Servants of God have contempt for contempt in their life. Make this your prayer. Lord, help me to love people more than I hate where they're at. Help me to love people more than I hate where they're at. 
And so how will God bless people with this change of mind that will result in a change of direction? How will God bless them with this ability to to repent? Here's how. Your compelling life that owns who you are, a servant of the Lord. You see, what is it about you that would cause somebody else to say, man, I want that. I need that. I need what they have. It's people who are in it for the long haul, who, who out of a heart of sheer gratitude for God's rescue and rescuing grace are people of real responsibility and they own this and they stay above the fray of all the garbage of all the all the other kinds of things that all too often cause people to drop out and quit but rather in true love that rises above it all, they see people with great compassion. They have contempt for contempt and they let God be God of all these situations. See, too often in people work, here's what we want. We want the grace of release rather than the grace of transformation. And you know what? Maybe that problem person in your life right now is nothing other than a mirror into your own heart for just how needy you are for the love of God to be seen by them. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, Watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, and how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. And while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him. By every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. The long haul life. You want it? Own who you are. You're a servant of the king of kings, of the Lord of lords. Stay above the fray. Be a person that demonstrates the love of Christ to those people who are helplessly ensnared by the ignorance of sin, who need to see what it looks like to be rescued by the only one who can. And rest in the fact that God is in control. Let God be God of your life. Let's pray. Father, I'm just so thankful for these dear people here today who are working hard at this. And while I don't know most of them, you do. You know them intimately. You know the burden and aches of their hearts. You know the circumstances of their lives. We pray, Father, for the beautiful transforming work of your spirit in us using your word to grow them, to shape them, to mold them 
and to use them in seeing other people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so, God, we're so thankful for, for this group of people today who are not just talking about the stories about what God did yesterday, but are seeing what you are doing today. And we praise you for it in Jesus' great name. Amen.